go and have a seat. Good morning, Harvest, and happy May. It's, can you believe it's actually May already? We're starting another month now. Uh, by my calculations, that means we're at least halfway through the pollen problem, I hope. I think, other, I think some other people appreciate that as well. I hope at least we're, we're getting there. But if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, my name's Andrew Watkins. I have the privilege of serving here at Harvest Annapolis as an associate pastor. Whether you're joining us in person this morning or you're tuning in online, uh, we're just so thankful that you've chosen to spend part of your Sunday morning with us. And if you are our guest in person, again, we're just so glad you're here. Uh, we would love for you to stop out at the, the welcome table out there in the lobby on your way out. We've got a gift for you. Uh, we want to make sure that you're as welcome as we can possibly make you feel and find out if there's any way that we can serve you at all. But let's go ahead and get into God's Word together this morning. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles, your smartphones, your tablets, or whatever it is that you tend to use to get your eyes on God's Word. And would you meet me this morning again in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 11 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I would still really encourage you and invite you to find a way to follow along with us. Uh, there's a couple ways you could do that. Uh, you could just pull out a phone wherever you're sitting and just Google uh, 1 Samuel 2 ESV, and it would pop right up for you. Or if you prefer a paper Bible, uh, we've got some on the back table back there that we would love for you to make use of and just take and keep it as your own if you don't have one at all. We would, we would love for you to do that. Uh, but last week, we started a new sermon series going through the book of 1 Samuel card called The, the, the Heart of the Matter. Uh, we're going to be continuing that this morning. And what we're going to see this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, in a lot of ways, just sets up the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. A lot of the, the, the themes that we see in Hannah's psalm this morning uh, are really some themes we're going to see happening over and over and over again over the next couple of months as we make our way through this book. So uh, before we get started, let me go ahead and pray for our time together in God's Word, and then we'll get started. Uh, Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. Uh, would you help us cast our minds to Calvary now as we come to your word? As we, uh, as we come to your word, we, we believe that every single word of it is inerrant and inspired by your Holy Spirit, and it's profitable for us for, for doctrine and for reproof and for training in righteousness. And so as we look at, at Hannah's psalm this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Father, would your spirit would be present among us and moving to encourage us and to challenge us, to guide us, to direct us, to, to change us, God, and to ultimately make us look more like your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, one of the scariest experiences of my childhood happened right around when I was 13 or 14 years old. Some of uh, my friends from school and I had really gotten into playing airsoft at the time, and so as the end of the school year approached, uh, we decided we were going to plan an all-out airsoft war a few days after the end of the school year to, to celebrate the end. We couldn't wait. When that day finally arrived, we all showed up uh, carrying all of the airsoft guns that, that you could possibly carry, wearing all of the camouflage that we could possibly find, and, and literally exuding all of the confidence and self-perceived invincibility that only a bunch of teenage boys can, can show. We were ready for anything, or at least we thought we were. So once everybody showed up that day, we, we, we made our plans for what was going to happen. We synchronized our watches. We did all of the cool things that you think you're supposed to do when you're about to do something like that. And then we, we parted our ways. We separated as we went out into the woods to, to take our positions where we would wait for about 15 minutes until we heard a car horn blast to tell us that the fight was on. The problem that day was that in all of our teenage excitement and overconfidence, none of us bothered to scout out the land. None of us bothered to check the weather forecast for the day. 
And so as we were waiting for those 15 minutes for, the, for that car horn to sound to tell us that the fight was on, the most terrifying, strongest thunderstorm of the summer that I, that I, I think I've ever experienced rolled in completely unannounced. It came in completely unannounced. It was like somebody turned off the, the light switch and it got as dark as night. Uh, the, the, all of a sudden there was the, the first flash of lightning followed immediately by this loud, deafening crack of thunder that was so sudden that it almost seemed like it happened before the lightning, which isn't even possible. The winds were blowing. Trees were literally falling. The, the rain was raining so loud that you couldn't hear anything around you. And so spread out all throughout the woods of Dublin, Maryland, were a bunch of teenage boys who just minutes before that would never have admitted that they were scared of anything. They would have never admitted that we, that we feared anything in the world, but now literally spread out throughout that woods were a bunch of teenage boys who were literally screaming at the top of their lungs, just hoping that someone would be able to hear them and help them. But the, the storm was so loud that no one could hear us. And so in that moment, we felt alone. All throughout the woods, each of us suddenly started one by one uh, abandoning our positions and just trying to run as fast as we could, trying to figure out how do we get back to safety? How do we get to, to where we started? How, how can I get there? Except again, none of us had scouted out the land, so we just started running in circles and couldn't find anywhere because we had no idea what we were doing. And so we felt lost. Once the storm finally found, died down, we, we finally found or heard a familiar voice calling for us and calling us to come back in the right direction. And one by one, we made it back to where we'd started only to realize the irony that none of us had really been that far away from where we were supposed to be in the first place. But see, storms, both physical and spiritual, can be extremely disorienting, can't they? They can be confusing. They can take what should be so clear to us in life, and they can make it extremely foggy. They can, they can distort things. Looking back on that day now, all we needed in the woods that summer day was an experienced guide, someone who had been there before, who, who knew the lay of the land and knew what to do, someone who could point us in the right direction and give us hope and help us get back to where we needed to be. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2 this morning, we are given an experienced guide for the storms of life in the person of Hannah. See, Hannah's a person who's been through a storm. We saw that last week. She's been through a storm. She's found God faithful. And as we'll see this morning, she, she comes out of that storm filled with joy and wisdom and hope. And she's a great example for us to follow. What a great opportunity for us to, to pull up a chair to, to where Hannah's sitting this morning and say, Hannah, what did you learn from your experience of walking with God through that disorienting storm? What, what did you learn from that experience? What can you teach us? What can you tell us that might be helpful for us as, as we go through the storms of life? And Hannah would be extremely happy to answer for us. See, what we find in Hannah is a godly woman whose life was changed by walking with God through what would have been an incredibly disorienting storm if her compass hadn't been fixed on God. The passage in front of us this morning is Hannah's beautiful response to what the Lord has done in her life. And if we're wise and humble enough to, to have ears to hear what she has to say with her hard-earned wisdom... This passage can be an incredible help and guide and, and, and encouragement for us as well. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's our big idea, our, our one-sentence overarching theme of the passage that'll tie it together for us. Our, our big idea this morning is this, a life well-lived keeps its compass fixed on God. Again, a life well-lived keeps its compass fixed on 
God. And, and so as we look at Hannah's psalm this morning, I want us to, to pull up our chairs. I want us to, to gather around Hannah and, and gain some hard-earned wisdom from a, from a godly woman who's been where we might be this morning. I hear you this morning and you're in a storm. We've got a guide for us. So let's, let's pull up a chair. Let's, let's learn from a woman who knows a, a thing or two about keeping her compass fixed on God. I want her to be our guide this morning. And so as she does that, the first direction that Hannah would give us this morning is this. She would say, always rejoice in what the Lord has done. Always rejoice in what the Lord has done. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter 2, look at just, just verse 1 with me. Here's how Hannah starts her prayer. It says, and Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. You know, it's always interesting to pay attention to uh, the way people describe th the things that they think belong to them changes over time. It's amazing to hear how fast something can change from being God's blessing for me to steward to my possession for me to hoard. For instance, you'll, you'll hear a man express his thankfulness to the Lord for a new car or a new computer or a new, a new purchase he's made, and he'll refer to it as, as a blessing and an opportunity that the Lord has given him, and he's expressing his thankfulness then, but just a few short weeks later, you'll find him expressing his anger when his child puts a scratch on his car or, or, or messes with his computer or does his thing. Suddenly, it went from being God's blessing for me to steward to my possession for me to hoard. Or maybe you'll, you'll hear an athlete giving God all the glory in the moments after winning a championship while the, while the confetti is still falling, only the next morning on ESPN to hear that same athlete bragging about how, how he earned the trophy and how he led his team to victory with his skills as he ever so subtly reclaims the very same glory that he had given to God the night before. He's reclaiming it for himself. Again, it's amazing to hear how fast something can change from being God's blessing from me to steward to my possession for me to hoard. Well, maybe you're thinking, Andrew, just because somebody says different words at different times doesn't necessarily mean that, that their heart has changed, maybe. It's true that we don't always perfectly communicate what's going on inside our hearts as well as maybe we would like to, but one thing that I do know is that the gratitude and joy that we see from Hannah in this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is not just a matter of semantics. When she said, my heart exalts in the Lord, she meant it with every single fiber of her being. Why? Because she knew that the two words that everything in her life hinged upon were the two words, but God. It wasn't written yet, but the first few verses of Psalm 40 give words to Hannah's story. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3 says this. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and lay my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He's put a new song in my mouth and a song of praise to our God. So just in case you weren't here last week and you're wondering maybe, well, what's the deal with Hannah? Hannah was barren. Hannah couldn't have kids in a time when having kids wasn't just what you did when you thought you wanted to start a family. It was really part of your plan for survival. But it's not just that she couldn't have kids. It's just it's that pretty much nothing else on the home front was going well either. See, she lived in a time when, as the book of Judges describes, says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the immediate impact that that, that kind of a culture had on her household was the fact that her husband, Elkanah, had two wives. Let's just be really clear about that for a second. That's sin. 
God's plan for marriage is one man and one woman for a lifetime. It always has been and always will be. But that's what's going on in her household. They're not living according to God's plan. But wait, there's more. Her husband's other wife could have children and did have children. And apparently that other wife made it her like personal goal in life to make Hannah's life miserable. All while her husband walked around saying things like, am I not enough for you? Like, do I not make you happy enough? Like, can you not just be happy with the way things are and forget about the dreams of the kids? Can you just not be happy with what, with what we have right now? It's not overly helpful and encouraging, is it? But even in the middle of all that, Hannah didn't lash out at the people around her. She poured herself out to God and promised God that if he would give her a son, she would give that son right back to him for his service. In other words, she would steward that son well because she knew that that son would be God's blessing to her, not her possession for her. So God did give her a son. Not because she said any special words or made any particular demands or promises, but because God saw fit to do so in his grace. Because God's writing a story here and now, uh, now three to four years after 1 Samuel chapter 1, Three or four years have gone by. She's brought her son Samuel to the temple to leave him here for good, to serve God. And what we find her doing now in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is worshiping the Lord in this moment. Just think about that for a second. Think about what she's doing here in the circumstances of, of this real person that's really going through a, a hard thing. I mean, I cried when we dropped our, our son off for his first day of kindergarten. Hannah's about to drop her son off for good. To never see, to, to see him occasionally once a year, but, but to never, never get to raise him. So you have to wonder, how many times between 1 Samuel 1 and 1 Samuel 2 do you think Hannah was tempted to regret her promise to God? When Hannah held her baby boy and, and looked at him and, and listened to him make all of those, those baby noise, noises, how, how could she not have just thought to herself, man, I really wish that I didn't make that promise. When she watched him take his first steps, how could she not have wondered what, what Samuel would be like as a man? How could she not have, have thought to herself, man, when he grows up, he's going to be a strong man. He's going to be such a help to our family around the house. What a blessing he is. When she watched him laugh and play on their way to the temple to drop him off, how could she have not have turned to her husband and said, do you think maybe we should just wait till he's 13? I mean, we'll, we'll fulfill our promise to God. We'll, we'll let him, we'll, we'll skip the teenage years. We'll, we'll wait a few years. Can we just, we'll just give him to God later? Let's just enjoy our son while he's young. How, how could she not have done that? We have to wonder, how was able, Hannah able to worship in this moment? Well, again, she could worship because she knew that Samuel was God's blessing to her to steward, not her possession to hoard because her compass was fixed on God. How do we know that? Well, she, she tells us she makes three statements here in verse one. First, she says that my heart exalts, it, it rejoices, it's, be, it's made glad in the Lord. Let's just stop there for a second and think about how that can go sideways in a hurry if we're not careful. See, if we're not careful, instead of rejoicing in what God has done by saying my heart exalts in the Lord, it's incredibly easy to let our hearts wander to the point where a more accurate statement about the condition of our hearts would be my heart exalts in my blessing. My heart exalts in the thing that God's given me. And the moment that that happens, we better go, uh-oh, because before you know it, that blessing, that, which, is really, which has really just become an idol in our lives, but that, that blessing will start dictating everything in your life. 
from your schedule to your finances to your relationships, when, when all along you should have been exalting in the Lord who gave you the blessing, not the blessing itself. Maybe for you that, that blessing is a child like Hannah had desperately prayed for. Let me just tell you something. Children make really easy idols, but they make terrible gods. They make horrible gods. Maybe for you it's a house or a job or a career. Whatever it is, I have to ask you this morning, what are you exalting in? What, are you, what, are you, what, do you, what brings you the most joy? Search your heart and ask, answer that question honestly with yourself. What, what brings you the most joy? Is your heart exalting in the Lord? Is your compass fixed on him? Next, she says, my horn is exalted. That's lifted up. It's strengthened in the Lord. And no, Hannah's not a musician. I think rhinoceros' horn here, not a trumpet. See, see uh, someone's horn was a Hebrew metaphor for their strength, their ability, their power, like, like the massive horn of an animal, like a rhinoceros' horn that would signify the animal's strength. And so let's just think in, in Hannah's context for a moment. She couldn't strengthen her own strength. She knew that. She couldn't open up her own womb. That's something that God had to do, and, and she knew that, and he did. So what she says here is basically, my strength was strengthened in the Lord. Like, he did this, not me. My strength was strengthened in the Lord. He, he's who worked in my life. But how often are we tempted to take the credit for what the Lord has done in our lives? How quick are we to forget that in John 15, Jesus tells us himself that apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. When our horn is exalted or our strength is increased or our position is magnified, how easy is it for us to convince ourselves, no, no, I did that. I'm the one that did that. I'm the one that achieved that. I'm the one that was able to pull this off. Not him. No, I did this. I earned this myself. But Hannah doesn't do that. Her compass is set on the Lord. She rejoices in what the Lord has done. So where are you trying to find your strength this morning? Is it in the Lord or is it in yourself? Last, she says, my mouth derides, that's boasts over, brags over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. I won't say much about this other than to say what the great pastor and Bible commentator of the last century, Warren Wiersbe, says, which is that defeated people usually keep their mouths shut, but people who have experienced God's victory have lots to say. They have lots of glory to give. They have lots of praise to offer not in a way that taunts the people around them, but in a way that rejoices in what the Lord has done. And that's what we're seeing Hannah doing here. But as we sit and listen to our guide, Hannah share some of her hard-earned wisdom, the first direction that, that she would give us is, is she would pull up a chair and say, listen, don't ever make this life about yourself. If you make things in this life about yourself, it's gonna make it really, really hard for you to give up the idols in your life. It's going to make it really hard to do that. So, so instead, of, instead of rejoicing in your idols, instead of chasing your idols, instead of hoarding your possessions, just rejoice in what the Lord has done in your life. Give yourself to worshiping him for what he's done. And, and if you do that, you're well on your way to keeping your compass fixed on him. So first, Hannah tells us, always rejoice in what the Lord has done. And here's the second direction that she would give us. Next, she says, clearly understand what the Lord is doing clearly understand what the Lord is doing. Look back with me at, at, at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. Hannah goes on in verses 2 through 8, and she says this, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. 
For there is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shale and raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Hannah really wants to help us get the lay of the land here and so we don't end up disoriented. And I'm not just saying that because it goes along with the illustration that we started with this morning. That's really what she's doing here. What we see, especially in verses two through eight, is not some private prayer that she prayed by herself in her car on the way to the temple to drop Samuel off. This is meant to be heard. This is public. She wants others to hear and learn from her wisdom. Whether we want to call it a prayer, a worship song, or a psalm, it's meant to be public. And in verses two through eight, she turns her attention from talking to God to talking about God. She wants us to clearly understand how the Lord works. And and from what I can tell, she wants us to do that by, by telling us what he's like, what he values, and what he's doing. So the first question we might have for Hannah is then, well, what is he like, Hannah? What's he like? Well, first she tells us that he's holy. What that means is that he's perfect. He's set apart. He's different than anyone else. God's holiness is what makes him worthy of our worship. It's what makes him God. J.I. Packer says, God's holiness covers all aspects of his transcendent greatness and moral perfection and is thus the attribute of all of his attributes, pointing to the very godness of God at every point. God's holiness reveals the core of his character and that's where Hannah starts as she tells us what he's like. She says that, that God is holy, and there is none like him. We could stay there forever, but Hannah goes on, and next she wants us to know that he's faithful. Really, she's been telling us that the Lord is faithful all along so far. She's been telling us he's faithful by what she's been calling him. She's been calling him the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and, and that's the way our English translations say the name Yahweh. She could have used all kinds of names here to refer to God, and I promise she didn't just pick one out of a hat and decide to to run with it, because nothing in Scripture is accidental. And so as Hannah rejoices in him for what he's done and wants to help us understand what he's doing, she calls him the Lord, Yahweh, the always faithful, never-leaving, covenant-keeping, always there, always present God of the universe who is close and personal to his people. You think Hannah knows a thing or two about the faithfulness of God in her life? I think so. And so as Hannah helps us get the lay of the land, she, she says, listen, come in here close. I want you to know something about God. I want you to know that there is a faithful God who loves you and cares for you and is always there for you. He's with you and for you and he will never leave you. And that's good news. Next, she says that he's immovable. At the end of verse two, she says, there is no rock like our God. Notice she calls him God there, not the Lord. And in Hebrew, that's the name Elohim instead of Yahweh because Elohim refers more to his strength and his power and his ability, whereas, again, the Lord refers to his faithfulness. And she calls him a rock, but don't think like little decorative garden rock here. Think boulder. 
think tanker that you can hold on to in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the ocean, that's going to keep you safe, that you can run to. One translation says, there, there is no bastion like our God. And that brings up reminders of verses like Proverbs 18.10, which says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. It's a mighty castle. It's a rock. It's a, it's a shelter of safety. It's a place you can run to, and the righteous run to it and are safe. Hannah clung to that promise during her trial and found it to be true. And now as, as we might be going through a trial, she, she wants us to know about that, that rock so that we can find safety in our immovable God just like she did. Then in verse 3, she wants us to know the Lord is all-knowing. Verse 3, she says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. In other words, Hannah wants us to very clearly understand that God knows everything about us. He knows everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought. More specifically, he even knows your motives so that when you think that you're doing a good thing, he knows whether or not you're doing with good motivations for good reasons. And that's important because Hannah doesn't want us to just answer the question of what is God like? She also wants us to answer the question of what does he value? So, Hannah, what does he value? Hannah, well, tell us, what, what does God value? Because verse 3 says that as the all-knowing God, that he is weighing our actions. That's determining if their value measures up to what God demands as a holy God. This measuring that he's doing here, this, this weighing is an illustration from the, from the marketplace where, where you're buying something and it's weighed to make sure it measures up to the right standard. It's like when you go to the grocery store and to buy some deli meat, and so that you tell them, well, I want a, I want a pound of ham, and so they, they get out the ham, and they, they start cutting, and they're, they're cutting for a while, but they're really not measuring it yet. They're, they're cutting, they're cutting, they're cutting, and they're kind of estimating, when am I going to be done here? And so they make a guess, they pull it off of the, whatever the cutting thing is called, and they put it on the scale to see if it measures up. They look at it like, oh, that's only like eight-tenths of a pound. We've got to cut some more. We're not there yet because it doesn't measure up. And Hannah says that's what God's doing with our thoughts, our actions, and our words. He's weighing them to see if they measure up to his perfect standard. So before we see what God does value, let's see what he doesn't value. Let's see what doesn't measure up. And, and Daniel chapter 5 gives us a really good picture of that. In Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, the Israelites were captives in Babylon, and, and we see the Babylonian king Belshazzar throwing a big party just to, to put his greatness on display. He put out the best of everything. He spared no expense. He, he threw this party. He wanted to show off his riches and achievements and, and accomplishments for everyone to see. He spared no expense. So as the party's going on, it's, it's going on, it's going on, it's, it's, it's happening. And so uh, finally, they're having a good time, but God interrupts the whole thing. God interrupts in the middle of, of the party. And Daniel 5.5 5 says that, fingers of a human hand appeared and started writing things on the wall. And everybody at the party, like obviously beyond freaked out about this. So, so they called Daniel to come interpret what was being written there. And one of the things that Daniel tells Belshazzar that, that, that writing meant was in verse 27 of Daniel 5, where it says, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. In other words, Daniel says, Belshazzar, you have been put on God's scales and come up short. God's not impressed with your big show. He's not impressed with all your accomplishments and your achievements. He's not impressed with you. In fact, he's, he's repulsed by all of this. He's repulsed by what you've been doing. 
Ironically, just before that, at the end of Daniel chapter 4, Belshazzar's predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, had just learned the very same lesson himself. And he says, listen, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. See, God's economy is different than ours. What we value is greatness, influence, power, achievement. We value having it all together, making something of ourselves, and then letting everyone around us know how awesome we are so that as we keep climbing the ladder, they can keep watching us from below. That's what we're about. That's what our culture wants us to do. But what Hannah wants us to know is that God's economy is very different than ours. That's why in verse 3 she says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. See, God hates pride. He despises when we give ourselves to building our own kingdoms, and we see that over and over and over again throughout Scripture. So what does God value? What does God value? If that's clearly what he doesn't value, then, then what is he looking for? Well, he, he tells us himself in Isaiah 66, verse 2. In Isaiah 66, he says, but this is the one to whom I will look. So this is what I'm looking for. This is what I value. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Or to put it more bluntly, as James 5, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's what he values. So let me just ask you, which are you this morning? Are you proud or humble? If you were to answer that honestly, God knows. He knows the condition of your heart. Even if you put on a humble front, he knows what's going on inside. So, so, so search your heart. What, where are you this morning on that scale from, from pride to humility? God's economy is different than ours. And now that we know what God values, let's ask Hannah what he's doing with what he values. Like once we know what he's like and what he values, God, what are you doing in this world? Before we let Hannah give us some examples, listen to what David says in Psalm 34, verses 15 through 22. And it wasn't written in Hannah's time, but here's what David describes. He says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Do you hear all the verbs in that passage? Do you hear what the Lord does? That's what verbs tell us. They tell us what someone's doing. So when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and he delivers. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers. He keeps and he redeems the life of his servant. Do you see those verbs, what he's doing? Is that not awesome? That's, what, that's God's heart. When you're pursuing what he's valuing, that's, that's what God's heart is. So what God does with what he values. And that's what we see Hannah describing in verses four through eight back in 1 Samuel chapter two. Again, she, she says things like, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble 
they bind on strength. Those who were full, those who had everything, hired themselves out now for bread. But those who were hungry, those who didn't have, those who were, who were lacking, they've ceased to hunger. Again, God is near to the brokenhearted. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that is good news for us. See, God is the God of the underdog. Not because it makes for a good storyline on TV or because it draws in viewers for March Madness, but because God is greatly glorified when he takes the humble, the lowly, the weak, the, the disenfranchised, the overlooked, the incapable, the, the unable, and he does something awesome with them. God is greatly glorified when his verse eight says, he lifts the needy from the ash heap. That's literally the dump. That's the place outside the city where they would take and get rid of all their garbage. They would take the animal waste and put it there. God lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. That's what we see happening in Hannah's life. And God does things like that over and over and over and over again throughout scripture. See, the reality is, when we're honest with ourselves and see things clearly, we're a whole lot closer to the lesser side of Hannah's list than we are to the greater side. When you really think about it, when you're honest with yourself, we're, we're not all that impressive as a bunch of people, are we? We stop trying to make something of ourselves as if that's gonna prove something to someone and we, when we stop trying to be something that we're not and we just start pursuing genuine humility before the Lord, that's when we're positioning ourselves for God to work the most in our lives. Because God's economy is different than ours. He values things differently than we do. In the 1980s, during the Cold War with Russia, President Ronald Reagan defined our country's military doctrine as peace through strength. We've probably all heard that phrase at some point, peace through strength. In other words, we'll be fine as long as we're bigger and better than the other guy. Like when the bully shows up on the playground, you punch him in the nose. That's, that's, our, that's our strategy. We just gotta be bigger and better than everybody else and then we'll be fine. And when you think about it, the military doctrine of peace through strength has come to really define our culture. Like that's the lens through which we think about everything now. From our careers, to our educations, to our, our families, to our possessions, to our houses, even sometimes to life in the church, we've come to think about things in, in the terms of as long as I'm bigger and better and faster and more able and smarter than the other guy, I'll be fine. As long as I can pull all that off, I'm gonna be fine. But listen, peace through strength might very well be a perfectly good military doctrine, but God's value system for our lives is not peace with him through strength, but strength in him through weakness. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 that when we are weak, it's then that we're strong. And that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. He, he flips the script on everything in life. He, he values the lowly. He values the humble. He values the weak. So which are you pursuing this morning? Does the economy of your life value strength or weakness? Are you chasing pride or humility? If we're going to fix our, com our compasses on God this morning, Hannah says we'll need to always rejoice in what the Lord has done and we'll need to clearly understand what the Lord is doing and then obviously live accordingly to that understanding. And then third this morning, the third direction that she would give us is this. She would say, put all your hope in what the Lord will do. She would say, put all of your hope in what the Lord will do. One last time this morning, look back with me at what she says in verses 9 through 11. She finishes up this 
psalm by saying this. She says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering in the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. In these last couple of verses, Hannah moves from how God works in the immediate to how he will work in the eternal. She turns her attention from justice in the here and now to justice in the there and then. And, and even she probably didn't fully understand all of the implications of what she's saying in these verses here. But one of the truths that she wants us to know about God that she didn't mention before is that God is a God of justice. In verse 10, she says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. That is not a fact that's popular to talk about today. We don't, we don't like to talk about the fact that God is a God of justice who will judge the ends of the earth because it doesn't actually give us really all the warm and fuzzies that we like. The fact that God is a God of justice who will judge the ends of the earth makes us uncomfortable. And the reason that it makes us uncomfortable is because we know that we don't measure up. We know at the end of the day, no matter how much we want to tell ourselves that we're awesome, we know that when, we, when we're measured up against God's holy standard, we will come up short. We will, we will be weighed and, and found wanting in the balance. We already know that, that God is holy. He's perfect in every single way. And not only is he perfect, but he demands perfection from us as well. Uh-oh. Uh-oh is, is right, because not only do we already know that he's holy and perfect, we also know that he's all-knowing. Remember, the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him our actions are weighed. He knows everything about us. He knows every sin you've ever committed, every wrong action you've ever taken, every angry word you've ever spoken, every impure thought you've ever thought, and one day you will stand before him as the judge of the universe and have to give account for yourselves for every single one of those things. And as Romans 3.23 tells us that the wages of the sin is death because God is a just judge. He must do what all just judges do and that's punish wrongdoing. The Bible tells us that the way he'll do that is by sending us to a literal, physical, never-ending place called hell where we will feel every single ounce of the punishment that we deserve for all eternity. God's wrath is against us for our sin. It's coming for us like a, a freight train. Or the way Hannah puts it, the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. And against them, he will thunder in heaven. That's bad news right there. That's, that's bad news for us. And so we might say, well, come on, Hannah. Are you, are you really going to end such a hope-filled psalm on such a bad note? You're really going to end things that way, Hannah? No, she's not. There's hope for eternity. There's good news after the bad news. In verse 9, she says, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But how, Hannah? We need to know. We, we need to, to know because we can't save ourselves. We, we, can't, we can't save ourselves. You said so yourself when you said, Not by might shall a man prevail. Like, we can't muster up the strength to, 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 to fix our problem with God. So tell us, Hannah, how can we be saved from the wrath to come? Verse 10, she says, the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And if we were listening to her say that in her time, we might push back a little and say, what are you, 
talking about here, Hannah? Israel doesn't even have a king right now. We're living in the time of judges. There is no king in Israel. So have you lost your mind, Hannah? You're talking about kings and anointed. What, what, are, what are you saying here? No, she hasn't lost her mind. She would have known that God had promised to Abraham and Jacob that one day kings would come from their line. She would have known the prophecies in places like Genesis 49 and Numbers 24 that one day God would send the Messiah to save his people. And that's the hope that she's pointing to here. See, when she mentions the anointed here in verse 10, she's literally looking forward to the coming of her Savior, the Mashiach, the the Messiah. That's the Hebrew word there for the anointed. It's the Messiah who would hide her from God's wrath. God's writing a story here, and even though Hannah didn't have all the details of that story, God in his grace made her a part of that story because, listen, that little boy named Samuel that she's dedicating to the service of the Lord would one day grow up to anoint a, a lowly shepherd boy named David to replace the high and mighty and proud King Saul. He, he, would, he would anoint this lowly, nothing, come from nowhere shepherd boy named David to be the king of Israel. And then from his line eventually would come Jesus Christ, the very Messiah that Hannah's prophesying about here, the one who would save his people from their sins. The bad news was that God's wrath was headed for us like a freight train, but the good news of the gospel is that God has raised up for us a Messiah who will stand in the way of God's wrath against us and say, I'll take their punishment. I'll pay their penalty. I'll absorb your wrath against their sin. And of course, that's Jesus Christ. He came to this earth to die on the cross in your place and take the punishment for your sins. So the only way that you would ever have to face God's wrath for yourself is if you were to ignore Jesus himself. If you were to push him out of the way and say, you know what, I don't need you. I'm fine on my own. I'll take my chances with the freight train of God's wrath. That's essentially what we're saying when we reject Jesus instead of running to him. And Jesus came to shield us from God's wrath and save us from our sins. And I wonder this morning, do you know the Messiah that that Hannah is putting all of her hope in? Do you know the Messiah she's talking about here? Do you know him? Have you run to him and embraced him as your savior? Hannah's compass was fixed on him and she put all of her her eggs in that basket. The question is, have you? From Hannah's perspective, she had to to look forward to what the Lord would do and and put her hope in what what he will do. But from our perspective and from our time in history, we get to look back and see what he's done. It's already done. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it's finished. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your personal savior, God's free offer of salvation through his shed blood of Jesus Christ on your behalf is open and available to you. All you have to do is repent or reject or, or turn from or change your mind about your sin and understand that, that you, have, you bring nothing to the table and then place all of your hope in what Jesus did for you. Say, I need him to be my savior. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, I would plead with you to do it today. To not leave here today knowing where you stand in terms of God's wrath against your sin. You can pray and talk to God while I pray here in just a second, or you can come talk to Pastor Dan or myself or pretty much anyone around you this morning about what it would look like to have the gospel in your life. I'd encourage you to do it. If Hannah were here today, she'd say, dear friends, make sure your compass is fixed on God. 
Because there's going to be some storms in your life that come. And if your compass is not fixed in him, you're going to run around scared. You're going to run around without hope. You're going you're to run around lost and not knowing what you're doing. Yes, always rejoice in what the Lord has done. She would always say, do your best to clearly understand what the Lord is doing. But most of all, she would say, put your hope in what the Lord will do. Trust in his Messiah. That's the hope that got, got me through the, the storm as I faced barrenness in the, in the previous chapter. And it's what will get you through your storm too. So let me pray for us as the worship team comes. Father, thank you for the promise of your Messiah. Thank you for your word that brings us the, the wisdom of saints that have walked through things before us and put their hope in you. They've learned some lessons to remind us that the blessings that we have are not ours to hoard, but they're ours to steward, and to worship you for what you've done, to rejoice in what you've done in our lives. But give us wisdom for, for those of us that are facing storms in life right now Give us wisdom. Give us direction. Help us to fix our compasses on you. Help us to clearly understand what you're doing. Help us to value what you value. To pursue humility instead of pride. Help us to put our hope in you, Father. If there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know your son, Jesus Christ, as their personal Lord and Savior, would you draw them to yourself this morning? And save them. And be glorified in the worship that, you, that we're about to give. In Jesus' name, amen.